humans, hello humans, hello humans. It's me, Ellie Krug, on Ellie Tuborn on Radio on lovely AM 950. Talking to you on show episode number 251. And I am talking to you live today on September 5. Yep, talking to you from the bunker, the bunker in Eden Prairie. How are you? I am thrilled, thrilled to be here. Um, I have I have a good show for you, and I would your opportunity to give me a call and talk to me because I love hearing from my listeners, all six of you. Uh, we've gone up in numbers. 952-946-6205 is the number. What are we going to talk about today? Well, I've got, well, the theme of the show, okay, is justice or the lack thereof and irony. Justice or the lack thereof and irony. That's our theme today. And uh, I'm going to talk with you about an article that came out of the Atlantic magazine on the subject of justice or lack thereof. Then I'm going to talk with you about um, an innovative project on how to house homeless vets. And I just think it's a, a stroke of imagination by an idealist. I've got also to talk with you about a window into my life. Uh, many of you know that I'm running for the uh, local school board out in eastern Carver County. I'm going to tell you a little bit about what's been going on out there relative to my campaign and uh, show you some irony as it relates to that. And then uh, if we've got time, we'll talk about what Scott Jensen's trying to do about uh, turning uh, Minnesota into Iowa or better yet, Mississippi. Don't get me started. Okay, but let's begin uh, with this. Uh, those of you who have ever heard me on this show before may know that I am a huge, 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 huge fan of the Atlantic magazine. I am. I discovered it back in night, way back in 1979 when I was a law student. At that time, living in a room on the top floor of a gorgeous old Victorian in um, Chestnut Hill, Massachusetts, going to Boston College Law School. The, the house was owned, this Victorian was owned by a divorcee who rented the top floor, three rooms, we had our own bathroom, uh, to law students. And, uh, but, you know, you had to go through the house to get upstairs, you could use the kitchen, you interacted with her kids and her, they were all on the second floor. It was, you know, it was nice, okay? And, but she got, she got the Atlantic in the mail. And that's how I, I mean... I grew up in a household, you know, where maybe Life Magazine was what we got, okay? You may, uh, some of you may have no idea what Life Magazine was, but at one time it was really, really a great magazine. Um, so, so uh, you know, and, and I remember the very first issue of The Atlantic that came in, it was a story about how the M16 rifle used by our troops in Vietnam, how it was defective, how the ammo for it did not work very well and how many of our soldiers died as a result of that. Well, fast forward, I've had a subscription to The Atlantic for over 30 years. They've got a wonderful deal, by the way, just a little bit so you know, at Christmas, when you have a subscription, uh, they, you, if you renew at Christmas time, you can, you can designate someone else to get free a whole year's subscription for The Atlantic, okay? And The Atlantic, it dives deep into subjects as well as, oh, wonderful, wonderful short stories. Uh, there are some short stories that have come out of there with phenomenal writing, which I 
I wish I could write nearly as well. I mean, for example, back in 20, in the fall of 2019, The Atlantic had, a, had an article, its future story was um, uh, a, the, titled The Great Land Robbery, How the U.S. Discriminated Against Black Farmers, and, and really details how in the South for cotton farmers, there, at one time there were over nearly 90,000 cotton farmers, but by the 1960s, that number had dwindled, late 60s, had dwindled to 3,000 black farmers, all as a consequence of government agency decisions around extending credit in a discriminatory fashion to white farmers ahead of black farmers. So, I mean, this is the kind of, I mean, hey, listen, if you're progressive, if you're a liberal, get the Atlantic magazine, which brings me to um, this week. Um, my life is uh, very complicated at the time, which I'll talk to you about in a second. But this week, this week I was flying to Denver. I flew to Denver uh, to speak uh, for a day at uh, the Denver, Denver University Sturm College of Law. It's a wonderful law school. Um, but uh, it seems that the only time I can ever read the, the Atlantic is when I'm on the plane. And so this month, uh, the, the I just got the... Uh, November issue last week, um, and this month uh, I, there is uh, the feature article. The feature article is by none other, none other than Jake Tapper from CNN. It's a piece titled "Good Luck, Mr. Rice, a Philadelphia Teenager, and the Empty Promise of the Sixth Amendment." Now, um, for those of you who may not recall what the Sixth Amendment is. Um, it is the amendment in the sixth, literally the sixth amendment uh, in the con- to the Constitution that guarantees everyone the right to a fair trial, right to competent counsel, the right to access a lawyer um, if you've been charged with a crime. It's, that's what the sixth amendment is. And, and in theory, so you're given a lawyer, in theory, that should protect your rights. And at least at that point, justice plays out. You know, uh, you, you, you know, you have a, you, uh, the prosecution has a lawyer trying to set out what the facts are. You have a lawyer trying to set out how those facts might not be accurate or, or, or providing additional information to maybe exonerate their client. And this piece about Mr. Rice is about a 17-year-old back in 2011, a 17-year-old named C.J. Rice. And we hear about this, okay, um, because, uh, because that of, of Dr. Theodore Tapper, Jake's father, uh, who, th- who, uh, who Jake Tapper explicitly describes as an idealist. You see, Dr. Theodore Tapper is a graduate of Harvard Medical School. Now, we're talking about, about golden credentials. He did a pediatric, a pediatric residency at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And while there, he became involved with a, a, a thing called the Medical Committee for Human Rights, which is founded to, to care for people injured in civil rights protests. And on the side, while going to, to medical school, uh, Dr. Tapper uh, treated sick kids at a clinic sponsored by the Black Panthers. So Jake Tapper, when you see him on CNN, know that he grew up in the household of an idealist. Just, okay? And what T- Jake Top- Tapper has written about is one of his father's patients, C.J. Rice. Um, and the story here begins with 
how C.J. Rice had been shot uh, while riding his bicycle with another person, another teen, one of his friends. They were riding down the street. Car came up, window opened, and uh, the car shot at C.J. Rice and uh, his friend. Uh, It hit C.J. Rice, I think, uh, three bullets, one of which went into his chest, down into his pelvis. Um, But C.J. Rice, he, he survived, okay? Dr. Tapper, Jake Tapper's father, treated him in part, okay? Um, but, th- but what happened then was an incident about three weeks later where a woman and, uh, and several of her children were sitting out on an apartment stoop um, waiting for a food delivery. It's uh, the, you know, on a September night, so it's dark out. Um, and where two, um, two males wearing hoodies with the hoodies pulled over their heads and the drawstrings tight, um, stopped about a half a block away, pulled out guns, and fired at this woman and her 17-year-old son who was next to her. And in the process, several people were shot. Nobody died, but several people were shot. The 911 call about about the incident initially reported that it was two black males with hoodies pulled up who they could not recognize, okay? 12 shots were filed, fired, and the, and the two black males ran away. Now, it's important for you to understand this thing about running away, okay? Uh, but the witnesses could not identify the shooters that night. When the police came, the witnesses, the, those that were shot, they said, we don't know who they were. All we could tell was that they were black youth, you know, and with the hoodies, okay? Then, uh, somehow... Uh, uh, a confidential informant drops a dime and says that uh, it was C.J. Rice uh, who was involved in the shooting, as well as his uh, friend. It turns out that the friend was the same person riding the bicycle with C.J. Rice when C.J. Rice was shot uh, uh, three weeks earlier. Okay, the friend's name was uh, Tyler Linder. All right, from there, the police didn't essentially consider any other suspects. They believe that CJ and Linder were members of one gang extracting revenge for the earlier shooting in which CJ had been shot. This was despite the fact that CJ said uh, he was not in any gang and despite the fact that on the night of the shooting, CJ and others said that he was at the home of a relative recovering from his wounds, which included a hip fracture from one of the bullets. You see, Jake Tapper's piece opens up with CJ, you know, walking in, barely walking into his father's medical office after having been in the hospital, having had five days, you know, five days in the hospital, major surgery, and with CJ barely able to walk, barely able to walk into the into Theodore Tapper's office uh, for an examination. So, so CJ's like, hey, I was recovering from my wounds. I can't even run. And the focus of the story is how the criminal justice system disparately treated C.J. Rice and Linder. You see, Linder's family had some resources, and they were able to hire an experienced criminal law, ter- law attorney who was able to go, at, go into court and successfully get Linder bailed out uh, for the year plus before the case went to trial. C.J., on the other hand, had no resources and instead was represented by a court-appointed lawyer who I'm going to tell, tell you about in a second, who was also a family friend. That lawyer would, didn't even wasn't competent enough to even try and get CJ out of jail. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, 
I'll continue to tell the story about C.J. Rice and Justice Not, um, as detailed in the Atlantic Magazine. We'll be back in a second. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug. Hey, give me a call. I'd love to hear from you. Three at uh, 952-946-6205. We'll be back in a sec. We're back. LE 2.0 Radio. Okay, so before we took the break, I was telling you about this story in the November issue of The Atlantic Magazine by Jake Tapper. And it's the story of C.J. Rice, uh, who was a patient of Jake Tapper's uh, father, Theodore Tapper, who, who was accused of a crime, attempted murder of four, four people in Philadelphia. He had, uh, there was also an alleged accomplice, uh, a teen named Linder, who was also uh, charged. Uh, Linder was able to afford a private attorney, criminal lawyer, uh, but C.J. Rice was not. Enter the, the court-appointed lawyer <clears throat> for C.J. Rice, a woman named Sanja Weaver, um, who, who, was, who had a private practice. And what happens often is you have public defenders and they're hired by the state to represent criminal defendants. So they, they're, they're usually state employees. They, they're professional criminal lawyers representing people who are indigent. But the, the system also has court-appointed defense lawyers. These are lawyers in private practice who are hired to represent uh, criminal defendants who are indigent. Indigent indigent, sorry about that. But, but Tapper, as Tapper noticed, noted, that in 2011, when Weaver was appointed to represent C.J. Rice, um, attorneys received only $2,000 if a case went to trial. Only $2,000. That, that includes all the prep work, all of that. You get $2,000 if the case went to trial, and then $400 a day, trial day, if you spend three hours in the courtroom. Um, this system, and which continues to exist in much of America, including in Minnesota, although the pricing is different, uh, it did not reward an attorney for preparing. And that showed up with how Weaver dealt with CJ, okay? In a period of 14 months leading up to CJ's trial, Weaver met with CJ only two times, and both times for no longer than 15 minutes. Tapper details how Weaver was in deep debt and had filed for bankruptcy recently prior to representing C.J. Rice. It was uh, to her benefit, uh, Weaver's benefit, to get appointed to as many cases as possible so as to get money in the door. The problem is that the more cases that you have, the less time you have to work a particular case. And I'm going to tell you, basic lawyering 101, now remember, I was a civil trial lawyer for almost 30 years. I tried more than 100 cases, jury ca- uh, cases, many jury cases, 100 trials of all types, more than 100 juries, um, very few criminal, but 
but civil. But, you know, it doesn't matter if you're going to try a case. You got to do certain things. You got to figure out who your witnesses are. You got to go to the scene of where the event happened. You got to figure out what records you need, like medical records or phone records. You got to go subpoena those records. You got to get witnesses in the courthouse. You got to prep those witnesses before they get on the stand. You got to then prepare how you're going to do all of that in the court. I mean, I used to be, I used to be up at 2.30 in the morning on my trial days preparing. That is not an exaggeration, preparing for the day ahead. And so Weaver, though, she didn't do any of that. She only met with CJ two times. Now, remember, this is a man on trial, a 17-year-old on trial for his, for his liberty, okay? And, da- and Tapper, uh, and, and, and while uh, Weaver, while CJ was 17 years old, okay, and she could have moved to have CJ tried as a juvenile rather than an adult, Weaver was so incompetent, she didn't do that. And while she provided the prosecution with some alibi witness names, she didn't arrange for those witnesses to be interviewed by the prosecution because then the prosecution may have decided, wait a minute, this guy isn't guilty. CJ's not guilty. We're not going to go to trial. At the trial, uh, Tapper contrasts the difference in preparation and, and skill between Linder's lawyer, remember, he privately hired, um, and that of... And, and that of uh, C.J. Rice. Linder's attorney effectively um, prepared, uh, presented alibi witnesses and evidence. A Weaver was totally unprepared at the trial. And this is where Tapper's father got involved because Weaver called, did call him to the stand for the, on the theory that, that C.J. Rice, from the earlier shooting of three weeks before this, this shooting occurred, this one that he was on trial for, that he was so incapacitated because he couldn't walk and even though uh, Weaver called Tapper's father to the stand, okay, she didn't subpoena the hospital records that would show that CJ had a fractured pelvis due to a bullet. And nor did she even sit down and prep Tapper's father and what his testimony would be. And when on the stand, Tapper's father wasn't asked questions that could have fully explained how CJ was physically incapable of running from the scene due to the extent of his prior gunshot wound. So you've got a witness on the stand, you don't prep them, and then you don't even ask the right questions. And of course, um, in the courtroom, as this trial's going on, the jury just, they see C.J. walk in, okay? I mean, he's in handcuffs, but they see him walk in. So the jury has no idea about how incapacitated he was because, because Weaver, C.J.'s lawyer, didn't paint the picture for them, okay? And, 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 and trust me, listeners, that's what a lawyer's supposed to do. And as you might expect, the jury handed down different results for C.J. and his co-defendant, Linder, uh, who was rep- C.J. represented by an overworked and incompetent attorney, and the other uh, represented by an experienced trial lawyer. So after two days of deliberation, the jury convicted C.J. of four counts of attempted murder. Linder, the co-defendant, who had the private lawyer, acquitted of all charges. And C.J. was later sentenced to 30 to 60 years in prison. As Jake Tapper notes, the Sixth Amendment guaranteed right to to counsel is problematic. He writes in the article, the Sixth Amendment guarantees defendants the right to counsel. In a 1984 case, Strickland v. Washington, the U.S. Supreme Court took up the question of just how bad lawyers need to be before their performance proves unconstitutionally, constitutionally defective. Writing for the majority, Sandra Day 
Uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor established a two-part test. A lawyer's performance falls short of the Sixth Amendment's right to counsel if A, it is deficient, and B, that deficiency prejudices the defense, depriving the defendant of a fair trial. The, The opinion went on to define a deficient counsel as one who, quote, made errors so serious that counsel was not functioning as the counsel guaranteed by the defendant by the guarantee the defendant by the Sixth Amendment, unquote, a definition that is not only vague but circular. The inadequacy of the standard has allowed a patchwork of different rules to proliferate across the country. A lawyer can sleep during part of a client's cross-examination or be arrested for drunk driving on the way to court or be mentally unstable or have been disbarred midway through a trial without sinking to the level of constitutionally defective performance. All of these instances have been adjudicated in various jurisdictions. Now think about that. Think about that. You know, they've attempted to overturn C.J. Rice's conviction because of ineffective counsel, but it doesn't appear that that's going to happen. This 17-year-old, 17-year-old, may very well spend 25, 30 years of his life in prison because a trial lawyer, a criminal trial lawyer appointed to represent him, couldn't do her job. Now that, I will tell you, is not justice. That is injustice. But that's the type of system that we have. All right, go check out the November issue of the Atlantic Magazine. Read this story by Jake Tapper. Highly, highly recommend it. When we come back from our break, I'm going to talk with you. Now I'm going to talk with you a little bit about uh, irony. Okay, all right. We'll be back in a second. Thanks. You're listening to me, Ellie Crew. Call in 952-946-6205. Thanks. And we're back on AM 950. Now, remember, the theme of the short show is justice or the lack thereof or and irony. Um, before I get to the irony, I do want to highlight the idealist uh, of this week. And, um, but it also relates to justice because it relates to our vets. I am, I am a huge, huge supporter of our vets. I really am. And one of the injustices in our system is that our vets have, are very often you know, not taken care of. Now, um, and, and that it's hit or miss state by state. Now, I, Minnesota attempts to do a, Minnesota has a goal of no vet being homeless. So that, no, that every vet who wants a bed in a, in a warm place, in a place where they can live, that in Minnesota, that that will happen. And for the most part, I think that that's occurred here in Minnesota, but in much of our country, that is not true. And so my attention really got spiked when I read about a CNN hero by the name of Chris Stout, who was a, who is a veteran, um, and who, um, after being wounded in Afghanistan in 2005 and returned home, struggled with his injury and PTSD. He enjoyed being around other vets, um, but he saw, he came to find out that there were gaps in how the vets were treated, what kind of, how they got services, and that, um, and as he did that, as he 
you know, got back on his own feet. He started to use his own money to help homeless vets. And then in 2015, he and a couple of other people got together and they created this organization called Veterans Community Project. And this is based primarily, it started out in Kansas City, although it's moving to other places. And what Chris Stout did is he, he and his colleagues focused on the idea of tiny homes. You know, these are the small homes that are built. They can be prefabbed homes. You put them in the clusters and you create like a, you know, a community. And what he and his colleagues did with Veterans Community Project in Kansas City is that they began a series of tiny home villages for vets. They have, um, they have served more than 8,000 veterans. They have housed, they house veterans in tiny villages, in these tiny homes, and, the, and, and they provide wraparound services. So they provide some coaching, they give them some, some access to medical care, health care, uh, you know, health care, legal services, what the vets need to help get them back on their feet. Once they're back on the feet, they move out and another vet comes in the homes. Um, uh, it, you know, it is, uh, it is a wonderful project. Uh, the average length of time that a veteran stays in one of the tiny homes is 11 months. Uh, if you go on their website for Veterans Community Project, you will see that uh, at their headquarters in Kansas City, they have a total of 49 homes, but they are expanding to other cities as they do this. Um, it's just, to me, it is an innovative wonderfully idealistic project created by a man, Chris Stout and his two colleagues, but Stout is the one who became a CNN hero, so he must have really taken a lion's share here of all this stuff. And, and it is a way of using your imagination to solve a problem. I'm a huge believer in that. So do me a favor, check out Veterans Community Project, VCP, check it out and read about uh, their tiny homes for vets. All right, now, now remember the show is, and, and that's about giving justice to our vets, okay? That, I've started out with injustice. I just talked with you about providing justice to our vets who, who have given their time and service to our country and sacrifice, many of them having been injured or wounded in war. And so now let's talk a little bit about irony, okay? So... Um, but it, there's a story here. I have, uh, many of you know, I've talked about this off and on. on the, uh, I am running for the local school board, um, Eastern Carver County Schools. Well, we'll find out how well I'm doing. I am one of 12 candidates vying for four seats. Uh, and, you know, before I got in, I was, you know, I was drafted to run. Somebody came to me and said, we think you should run. At that time, they said there were four open seats. I had no idea that 12 candidates eventually would show up. But when, but when they were drafting me, they said, Ellie, we think you should run. We think you, should, you can win. But Ellie, we're sorry you're going to get attacked because you're transgender. And we're so sorry that that's going to happen to you. But we still want you to run. And that, was, that statement was made in light of what's going on across America. There's some history in, in uh, District 112 about intolerance. But, but I said, okay, that's all right. I'm a big big girl <laughs> and I can take care of myself. And I decided to run. I did. And you know, I put my name in the hat. I filled out the paperwork the first or second week of August and I waited to get attacked. Nothing happened. Went the whole month of August. 
Nobody. No phone calls, no Facebook, no nothing. We go the whole month of September. No attacks. Nothing. I, I just keep hearing from people. I want to vote for you, Ellie. We're so happy that you're running. I mean, it was all positive. The first week of October, we had the candidate forum. All 12 of us on a stage. Everybody getting 90 seconds. And I am worthless in 90 seconds to answer anything other than maybe what my name is, but given 90 seconds to speak. During the course of that candidate forum, there, a question came down uh, to the effect of what you know should be the board policy towards social media, uh, the social media center and the library. Now, I was candidate number 10 that got to answer that question. The, the, and I, I've talked about this on, on my show previously about this incident. And all, you know, before they got to me, everybody's like, well, you know, we should defer to the, you know, librarians or, hey, the parents need to be involved with this. But nobody ever used the phrase book ban. So by the time it got to me, I said, let's just deal with, you know, the inference suggested by the question, which is, should, should we be banning books in District 112? And I said, absolutely not. Sorry, I just pounded on the table when I said that. I said, no. I said, you know, the books are out about LGBTQ experiences and, and for children of color. Those books are about their history. It's important. We, you shut out the books. You shut out the history. You shut out them. I said, no. In no, no circumstances should there be any book bans. Well, my sister, who's an educator, was watching this in Iowa online. I got out of the car. I got into the car after the event, uh, the forum and I got a text from her. Um, good, but pretty strong on that one question. And I was pretty strident about book bans. I'm pretty, you know, I'm also a writer with a book out there. And so um, I wor worried, maybe I was too strident, but then people, I started getting campaign contributions, people asking for my signs, people saying, way to go, Ellie. You know, we, you know, we want you. And I'm like, okay, it wasn't too strident. All right. Fast forward to uh, last week. Thursday of last week, as a matter of fact, not the most recent week, the week before. I, uh, about nine o'clock in the morning, I got a text from one of my supporters. Ellie, I'm so very sorry about this. I'm sorry this happened and provided me a link. And wouldn't you know, somebody, somebody organized and somebody with money took the 22nd split of out of the forum where I'm like, no book bans, you know, Nothing, you know, we're not going to ban books about LGBTQ and children of color. They took that out and they created a video with that at the start. And then some language about this person has been going into our schools, talking to our students. And then they went through every library in the district to find what books related to LGBTQ, including some graphic novels. And they photographed the graphic novel. Uh, pages, um, and then and then quoted other books. Okay, with with sexually explicit words. I'm sorry, you know. I mean, in high school, you, you all kinds of books. Okay, and then the gist was: Ellie Krug, the transgender candidate, wants to expose our children to gay porn, and of course, you you can get all the other extrapolations from that. And I'm like, oh my god. So there was the attack. And uh, they, by the way, they were having difficulty keeping the video up on a, on a website because the host for the website kept pulling it down because they were violating all kinds, this video violated all kinds of copyrights. At any rate, 
I had to go on Facebook. I had to explain, you know, hey, yeah, I did say that. This is why I said that. And essentially said, you know, um, if I'm going to be attacked, that's all right. I'll, I'll, I can handle it. I'm a big person, you know, but if you could support me, I would appreciate it. And by the way, if you want to talk about this, I'd be happy to meet with you in public, whoever. And you know what? You know what happened after that? All kinds of people who I don't know whatsoever came forward defending me, came forward supporting me. I got, I got more, more requests for yard signs. I, I, I was blown away, everyone. I want you to know this, okay? And this is the idea about the tyranny of the minority, the very, very small minority. But in my case, the majority started showing up on my behalf. I am so grateful, so incredibly grateful to the District 112 parents, voters, humans, who defended me, okay? But that's the morning of last Thursday. I'm getting attacked. Now, here's for the irony. This is the irony's part of this show. That was the morning at 9 o'clock, getting attacked. Five hours later, I'm in my car driving from point A to point B. I get a phone call from a number that I don't recognize, but I pick it up. And the number and the person on the other end goes on to tell me, this is who I am, which I don't, I never heard of this person before, representing this organization, which I had some idea about the organization, saying, we're going to give you a major award for how you advocate and speak up for LGBTQ plus people. Now, I can't tell you the nature of the, uh, the organization. It's not been made public. They've asked me not to disclose who it is, but it's a major, it's a national award. And, and I just, I mean, it was, of course, an incredibly wonderful thing. And I'm not a big fan about aggrandizement and telling you things, okay, about how great I am or anything like that. I'm only sharing this with you to give you a window into what my life is. Attack in the morning, honored in the afternoon. Holy cow, what irony. I mean, <laughs> it is kind of unbelievable. You know? But it's also proof, okay? Your host right here, idealist, idealist, working to make the world better. It's proof that you can do that. Yes, you've got to weather some storm, and I have no idea how the election is going to go. I have no idea. In two hours from now, I am going to be knocking on doors for the whole afternoon today, and I'll be knocking on doors tomorrow. I've been doing that every weekend since Labor Day. I have no idea how the election will go, but I will tell you this, okay? I will tell you this. What a journey. And I am so incredibly grateful. Uh, so incredibly grateful. All right, for how people have shown up for me. We've got a caller on the line. I'm going to have them hold for a second because we've got to take a break. When we come back from the break, I'll speak to our caller. You're listening to me, Ellie Krug, on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Thanks. And we're back. Ellie 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Uh, we've got a caller on the line. I'm going to guess... Her name is Rachel. 
Are you? Hey, Ellie, you're, uh, <laughs> yes, you're East Coast fan club checking in. <laughs> hey, Rachel, how are you? <laughs> I am well. Um, just wanted to call to wish you so much uh, luck on Tuesday and just sending so much love and support your way. Um, hoping for the best. Um, Thanks. You're, yeah, you're amazing. Oh, well, thank Thank you, Rachel. I really, I really appreciate that. You know, I've got to tell you, Rachel, I am, I really am in awe of uh, the folks in my district. I really am. Yes, you know, I, the trolls have shown up and I'm getting these ridiculous questions on Facebook uh, now since that video came out. But just like even this morning, somebody, even before I could respond to a comment, somebody is like, you know, you know, posted and like to this person and wrote the ridiculous question, you know, it's like, you know, get off your high, high box. Okay. And, you know, and quit being so ridiculous and leave Ellie alone. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what, Ellie, it's like you always say that what the 98% of people in the world are uh, good people. And, you know, the 2% that are, Yep. Um, off the rockers and um, you're pretty much right. So it's like, I love hearing those stories about the people that have come to your defense. It's, uh, that just goes to back that point. Yeah. And Rachel, I mean, isn't it, I, you know, so yeah. Okay. So I finally got attacked. All right. Okay. And, 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 but I went for so long without it and yeah, you know, but, but I, you know, but I've got to just tell you, I am just so incredibly great. The, these, all these people that have come to support, I mean, I got, you know, I got somebody who's my treasurer who I had no idea about and top notch, you know, like totally professional. I've got a communications person who knows her stuff. <laughs> you know, I've got other people sending me e- emails and, and it's just, <laughs> look, you know, I don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday, but I will tell yeah. you this, Okay. However it goes, it's still going to be an incredible story. Okay? Of course. You know? Course. And I think it's a story of hope. And, you know, and, 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 you know, of course, if I win, it would be really something. But who knows? Of course. You know, who knows? Rachel, I'm just thrilled that you gave me a call. Hey, it's great to hear from you. And will you take care, my dear? I will. And, and again, good luck. Thank- uh, my friend, uh, thinking about you. Thank you. All right. Take All right, care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. bye-bye. All right, listeners, that was the East Coast Elliot Krug fan club member one. <laughs> Only one member in it <laughs> calling in. Now, listen, and I've got uh, like three minutes left. I, I do want to talk about the Scott Jensen thing. Now, remember, I'm a, I don't do a whole lot of politics on this show other than to the politics around trying to marginalize LGBTQ people, particularly trans people. But this week, I, I just got to deal with this, okay? This week, Scott Jensen had, you know, um, Kim Reynolds from Iowa, the Iowa's governor up. And Jensen po- uh, proudly and explicitly uh, stated that he wants to turn Minnesota into Iowa. Uh, he also said yesterday uh, he, he thought Mississippi be okay for us as a as a blueprint as well. Mississippi. Come on. I mean, geez. 
But in Iowa, do you know what they've done? I mean, they took away collective bargaining for the teachers. They have public, they have created this voucher system, which is eviscerating the public school system. And they publicly, they've publicly demeaned teachers. I mean, I, I mean, legislators calling teachers groomers, calling them, calling them criminals. I mean, the, the degree of, of, of animosity to the public education system in Iowa. You may also remember a story where I had thought about going back to Iowa because I'm an Iowan in my blood. Don't hold it against me, okay? But I couldn't go back after the 2020 election because they were going to they were going to marginalize LGBTQ people even more than what they've done. And Scott Jensen wants us to be like Iowa. Listeners, I've just got to tell you this. There are so many people in Minnesota right now, LGBTQ plus people and the people that love them and their supporters who are scared to death about this. Because if we become like Iowa, I don't know where I'm going to move to, to be safe. And I don't know where our kids are going to get educated. Iowa used to be number one or two in, this, in the country relative to, to its education system. It's now way down in the middle of the pack because of what has happened in Iowa by main Republican legislators taking away funding from public schools. We cannot be like Iowa. That's all I'm going to say. And the stakes are that high on Tuesday. Okay, well, listen, uh, it has been a really great pleasure to talk with you again today. Um, I need to do a big uh, thanks to my producer, Dan, who's keeping me on track with everything. I hope you've enjoyed this show. Um, you know, I, I love coming live. I love hearing from my, you know, six listeners. And so um, just go out and have a good weekend. Know that two hours from now, I'm going to be knocking on doors. And make sure you vote on Tuesday and you get everybody else to vote on Tuesday. Okay, make sure of that. All right, talk to you next week. Bye-bye.